So there is uh, the idea that uh, that the NHS is the only universal healthcare system uh, in the world. Now, obviously, nobody literally believes that. If you if you ask even the biggest NHS defender, uh, are you really saying that this is the only system which guarantees access to rich and poor alike? I don't think anyone would say yes. I do believe that because. If you put it like that, it's obviously not true. But we debate the NHS as if we believed it, as if it were true. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Christian Neimitz, head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs think tank. Christian talks about the special status that the National Health Service has in the minds of the British public. NHS patriotism is the only kind of patriotism that's socially acceptable, uh, that even woke progressives would accept or even embrace. Uh, they would normally consider patriotism uh, very low status, uh, lowbrow, you're not supposed to, to feel that way. Uh, but if you make it about the NHS, then it becomes socially acceptable and permissible. He shares the backlash that comes with discussing one of Britain's most sensitive subjects, NHS reform. It's certainly, it has created mass a massive backlash. Um, I, I see this every time I, I, I have some publication out or or it's mentioned somewhere in, uh, in the media that uh, my, my Twitter notifications would uh, fill up with, uh, well, um, partly just simple hate comments, but also some, um, and a lot of, say, smear campaigns from, from NHS campaigners who try to somehow uh, insinuate that, um, that I'm in the pay of some American healthcare corporation or stuff like that. I'm Lee Hall, this is British Thought Leaders. Christian Nimes, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. The NHS is surrounded by myths and misinformation. What's the biggest myth regarding the NHS that people believe? Right. Uh, it's a very peculiar set of myths because it's a sort of myth where once you spell it out, the absurdity becomes obvious and apparent. Uh, that's why they're never explicitly spelled out. It's more the sort of myth uh, that even though nobody literally puts it in those terms, uh, we often act as if we did believe them. So there is uh, the idea that uh, that the NHS is the only universal healthcare system uh, in the world. Now, obviously, nobody literally believes that. If you if you ask even the biggest NHS defender, uh, are you really saying that this is the only system which guarantees access to rich and poor alike? I don't think anyone would say yes. I do believe that because if you put it like that, it's obviously not true. But we debate the NHS as if we believed it, as if it were true. And uh, related to that, the idea that, that it is the envy of the world, that it is something that people from elsewhere somehow look upon with envy, that is uh, perhaps the second biggest myth. And that's maybe, that, that's slightly different from the first one because there you see people explicitly using that phrase, um, literally putting it that way, calling it the envy of the world. But again, if you, uh, it's uh, the sort of thing where you wouldn't, uh, you would never say to a Western European expat um, or, or an expat from any other developed country, you would never say to them, gee, you must be so glad that you live here now and that you have access to the NHS, unlike in the hellhole uh, where you come from. And nobody would say that. People do uh, sort of know at some level that 
wherever you come from, there, there's going to be some healthcare system as well. And you probably don't envy this country specifically for its national health service. I mean, why is no one emulating it if it's the envy of the world? Well, yeah, that would be one thing. Um, there are, of course, other examples of uh, state-run health services, of publicly funded health services. That's not uniquely British. Um, but there are plenty of other models as well. And even where uh, state funding exists, it's usually in the form of um, you may have a system of overlapping regional health services. So Spain and Italy have systems like that. And even they are quite comfortable buying a large chunk of healthcare from the private sector. Uh, so um, I think something like a third or so of, uh, of, of healthcare in Italy would be privately provided, even though it's funded through um, the, the public system. So it is quite unusual to find a system where uh, state financing accounts for such a big proportion of it and where the state also insists on being um, almost the sole provider of healthcare. It's an unusually uh, state-centric healthcare system. We can, when, when we discuss this issue, we're kind of told there's basically two options, either what we've got now or this American style where people are bleeding in the streets if they can't afford to pay and they become medically bankrupt. But as, as you mentioned, there are other systems. Can you talk to us about some of those and how successful they are? Yes. Uh, so one of the uh, examples that I've mostly focused on is the social insurance system or social health insurance system. That's a system where it's basically the system of the Netherlands, a uh, system of Switzerland, Germany, Belgium, Israel in a different way. Uh, those are systems where they look at first sight very much like private uh, conventional insurance system, meaning that um, you take out insurance in case you get sick. And uh, if you do get sick, you don't pay the doctor, hospital or pharmacist directly, but they uh, would send a bill to your insurer, right, yeah. uh, like, like any uh, other um, conventional insurance system. The big difference is that in those systems, the, uh, the insurance premiums that you pay would not depend on your individual health risk. So if you are in bad health, if you have chronic conditions, if you have a family history of cancer or whatever, it is some genetic factor that makes you uh, predisposed to some illness, uh, that doesn't mean that you would have to pay a higher premium or that you would be discriminated against in some other way. It's a system where uh, the what economists call the good risks, uh, the people in good health in this case, um, uh, the good risks subsidize the bad risks. Right, right. Because they pay the same premium when, when uh, at least for if they have the same insurance contract, the same insurance model, they would pay the same premium. And that means if you're in good health, you pay more than you would in a conventional insurance system because you pay more than your healthcare is likely to cost. And if you are in bad health, you pay less than you would in a pure commercial insurance system. And um, yeah, the cross subsidy uh, explains the difference. The good risks would subsidize the healthcare uh, costs of the bad risks. And so these systems are working well in, in other countries? They work pretty well. I mean, that system is, um, if you look at international rankings of health outcomes, so survival rates for um, cancer, heart attack, stroke, they are almost always well ahead of the NHS, sometimes among the best in the world, uh, the social insurance system. Um, there's, there's variation, of course, between them, but I haven't come across a social insurance system that produces terrible results. So they're all, they are all between good and very good. Um, 
outcome-wise, it's a pretty safe bet. There's no bad example of that. And they're all universal systems. They're all systems where everybody is covered. It wouldn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Uh, you would get a similar standard of healthcare. And in, in those regards, uh, they also have the things that people most value about the NHS, which, which is this universality and this, um, this egalitarianism. So what money can buy in those systems, if you're rich, you can buy comfort. You can buy things that are not clinically necessary, but quite nice to have. You can pay for having single room accommodation in, in a hospital. Uh, you can pay for some, um, some super novel drug that um, where the regulator wouldn't judge it sufficiently uh, better than the standard alternative and therefore wouldn't be included uh, in, this, in the standard insurance package. Um, so things like that where in Britain, if the NHS says we're not covering this, you just couldn't get it at all. Uh, whereas in those systems, you could say, well, um, let me just pay the difference between what you would, what the insurer would normally cover and the, uh, the cost of this super novel uh, innovative uh, treatment. So you, you can pay for, for things that are nice to have, not strictly speaking clinically necessary. But you can't really, it's not that the rich person gets better healthcare per se. You would, uh, whether you're a homeless person or whether you're Bill Gates, you would still be, you would still go to the same hospital, you would be seen by the same uh, clinical staff. If we did agree to move to a system like this, how difficult would it be to kind of detangle everything and, and get there? There are some, uh, some precedents for that. It's been done before. Uh, Czechoslovakia did that in the early 90s, and then when they split into the, uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, they continued that transition in different ways. So they inherited uh, an NHS-type system from the old Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, uh, because the, the Eastern European systems, they, they all had what you could describe as NHS-type systems under socialism. They inherited that, and uh, in the early 90s, as part of their transition to a market economy, um, they introduced a social insurance system of sorts, I believe in their case modeled on the, on the German one, but it could have been a different one. And um, I don't know a huge amount about it, I don't know the details about it, but from what I know it's not been terribly disruptive. It just meant that uh, they, had, uh, they, they set up a state health insurance company, transferred everybody to that state insurer. Initially everybody was covered by that. And uh, then they just gave people a choice. They said, from now on, you can switch to a competing private insurer if you want to. And uh, insurers were setting up these alternatives. And they also transferred uh, the ownership of healthcare facilities. So some from the national to the local level. In some cases, uh, it was just privatized uh, straight away, uh, creating a, something um, resembling a competitive market in healthcare provision. And yes, over time, it just morphed into uh, the social insurance system that they have now. It wasn't particularly disruptive, can be done. Uh, another example would be Eastern Germany, where they also had, uh, as when uh, the, the German Democratic Republic uh, also had an NHS-type system, they then, as part of the reunification process, adopted the West German system. And that was essentially the transition from an NHS-type system to a social insurance system. Uh, in, in the East German case, it was done in two years. So you'd feel quite confident that the UK could transition if it agreed to? 
Well, if, if somehow uh, the idea came up today and if the government suddenly decided, oh, let's, let's do this, this is a brilliant idea, uh, then they would probably mess it up somehow. It would be, uh, then it would be like Brexit all over again, um, where, where um, you start thinking, well, how hard can it be? And then you, you would have to think about it quite carefully before. It would not be, it's an idea that has to be incubated and there isn't really much thinking around that. So I wouldn't want them to start today. Uh, there would need to be a transition plan. You would have to work this out in advance how you want to do it. Um, but yeah, as I said, there are precedents and um, I'm, I'm sure it can be worked out somehow. It's just so far, uh, nobody's even been thinking about it. It's only in the last two years or so that you see references to alternative models more frequently in the media. And even then, they would never talk about how the transition works. They would just say, oh, look over there. Look on the other side of the channel. Uh, there's this system that works. There's that system that works. That's a good start. Uh, but so far, nobody has really thought about the transition. So um, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, would require some thinking about it beforehand. So you shouldn't just stumble blindly into it and, and say, oh, well, let's just see how it goes. But um, it's been done elsewhere. There's no reason why it shouldn't be possible to do it here. Do you think things have kind of opened up a bit in recent times to discuss this issue? I know you wrote a book about it a few years ago. But as you say, recently, it's getting a bit more traction. Yes, it's really been over the last two years only. Uh, so when the book came out, I think it was in 2016, uh, Universal Healthcare Without the NHS, um, it felt like I was pretty much the only one um, talking about it. It was it was really not a mainstream idea, and it's it it still isn't. Um, I still wouldn't describe it as a mainstream idea, but it, nowadays it's not that unusual to see um, a mainstream newspaper, say the Telegraph. They've done this a couple of times, uh, and the Spectator and the Times, where they simply talked about. Um, saying, okay, we have uh, this constant crisis in the NHS, things are clearly not working, let's be honest with ourselves, it isn't the envy of the world, uh, we've been fooling ourselves. And they would point to some of the systems I mentioned, they would say, well, the, the Dutch system uh, doesn't seem so bad, the Swiss system doesn't seem so bad, um, why can't we have what they're having, that is essentially uh, the, uh, the one of the arguments that, that I'm making in that book. It has become more mainstream now. I would not be, nowadays you wouldn't be surprised if you read about that in a mainstream newspaper or magazine. Um, when the book came out, that just didn't happen. Did you experience much like pushback or censorship or anything like that? Uh, well, I'm pretty much uncancellable. That's uh, one of the advantages of working for a think tank, that uh, we don't have to be popular. Uh, if a lot of people hate it and want to scream at us on social media, then they're free to do so. And uh, that doesn't mean that we will change uh, what, what we're saying. Um, it's certainly, it has created mass a massive backlash. Um, I, I see this every time I, I, I have some publication out or or it's mentioned somewhere in, uh, in the media that uh, my, my Twitter notifications would uh, fill up with, uh, well, um, partly just simple hate comments, but also some, um, and a lot of, say, smear campaigns from, from NHS campaigners who try to somehow uh, insinuate that, um, that I'm in the pay of some American healthcare corporation or stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, that, that would happen. Um, but... Uh, 
yeah, that's, that's not going to go away. It's not going to become a popular idea anytime soon, but it is, as I said, taken up by more people. It's no longer the, the complete taboo that it once was. But of course, if you make that case, you have to be prepared that uh, a lot of people will hate you and they'll tell you about it. I wanted to talk a bit about the attitudes towards the NHS because it can feel almost a bit religious at times. If we remember back to the Olympics opening ceremony in London, now this enormous kind of theatrical celebration of the NHS. I can really think of any other example of a public service that's been celebrated in this kind of way. Do you think that's representative of what people really think? I think it is because it tallies with the surveys that we have on this. Um, the NHS always gets phenomenal levels of, uh, of public approval in surveys. It can, there is of course, uh, there, there may be an element of group pressure that we notice from other surveys that uh, even if it's anonymous, even though it's not that your name will be published uh, next to your survey response, uh, we still act as if somehow uh, people were judging us for our opinions. So there, there may be some group pressure involved, but it is normally, um, so I remember two surveys here in particular. One. Uh, it's been done several times uh, where the question is something like, what makes you most proud to be British? Right. It's always the NHS. That's num the number one response. And by a massive, massive uh, distance. Um, so it would not be so, uh, things which I think are a more reasonable response. People saying uh, Britain's role uh, during the Battle of Britain, during the Second World War, standing up to fascism. Um, that, to me, will be a good reason uh, to, to feel pride. Uh, that is way behind the NHS by, by a massive distance. We're talking about something like 40 percentage points or so. Uh, so that's a repeated result. It, it's always uh, the what comes up as what makes people most proud. It's You could say, especially nowadays, uh, we talked briefly about the, the culture war before, the interview, uh, you could say this is the only kind of NHS patriotism. It's the only kind of patriotism that's socially acceptable, uh, that even woke progressives would accept or even embrace. Uh, they would normally consider patriotism uh, very low status, uh, lowbrow, you're not supposed to, to feel that way. Uh, but if you make it about the NHS, then it becomes socially acceptable and permissible. So um, we see a lot of that. The other survey that I remember is uh, an international survey from the early, uh, the first year of COVID, uh, where people were in, in, I think, a dozen countries or so were asked um, about how they evaluate the performance of various institutions in their country, how they're dealing with, the, with COVID, with the crisis. Mm -hmm. So some public sector institutions, uh, how, how do you think uh, the, your Department of Health or um, your public health uh, agency, whatever that is in, in the respective country, how do you think they're coping with it? And also some private sector and third sector, charitable sector institutions. Um, it was always for the NHS was the institution uh, that received by, by, by a massive distance the highest levels of approval, uh, not just in Britain, in Britain, but nowhere in the world, uh, at least in the countries covered in that survey. No other institution had anything like that kind of approval. It was, it must have been, they didn't have the raw numbers, they just, uh, what they do is people who say um, approve, uh, this institution is doing a great job, minus number of people who say they're not doing a great job, and you still had something like over 80% every time. So that means you must have, uh, th there can be hardly anyone uh, disagreeing with that. You must 
have, it must be almost universal, uh, this idea that the NHS was doing a fantastic job. And so, so yes, it's um, at least at the time that was an almost universally held view that the NHS really is a brilliant system. So I remember during the COVID times and um, people were standing outside their houses and clapping yes. for the NHS on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But I wondered, are they clapping for the, the system of, of the healthcare, or is it more that they're showing an affinity for the, you know, the healers and carers of our society? Well, the whole problem is that uh, in this cult around the health service, that uh, these two are always mixed up. It's completely natural to feel gratitude if you receive uh, great healthcare treatment or, or even okay healthcare treatment. If you, you, it would normally mean you're you're in a position of vulnerability. You might be scared. You don't know what's wrong with you, and you receive treatment, and uh, it's it's just natural in any kind of system that you, you will feel grateful uh, towards uh, the people treating you, and. Um, more so than for other services, and that might still be true even if it's uh, even if it's privately provided, and even if you know they're not doing this out of the kindness of their hearts. And but there is uh, a, a, a commercial or a financial motive, which of course is also true in the NHS. People don't uh, work as volunteers for the NHS; it's a, it's a paid profession like any other. But still, it's natural to feel a sense of gratitude, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that here that always gets conflated with the institution. And um, I remember this uh, during COVID, uh, I think uh, in early 2021, so just after the, the first year of COVID, um, I published a paper which, among other things, uh, which looked at how the NHS was performing during COVID compared to other systems. And I found, well, nothing outstanding, nothing exceptional here. And this was uh, branded by a lot of people as, as if I was somehow attacking doctors and nurses. Um, I think it was, uh, it was Angela Rayner, deputy leader of the opposition, who said, um, this is a disgraceful attack on our hardworking nurses and, and things like that, and even wrote an open letter to the, um, the health secretary at the time saying, you have to condemn this report. You had absolutely nothing to do with him. But um, yeah, that's the kind of response that you get this conflation uh, of the institution with individual people working in it. Whereas, of course, the people would still be there if we had a different system. So it can be quite difficult to find medical voices that aren't somehow kind of enmeshed in the NHS, whether it's funding, whether it's research. Do you think we, we can reverse this in, in the British kind of collective psyche, this healthcare and NHS being one and the same? It would probably have to come from doctors at some point. And it's not as if everyone in the medical profession was fully signed up to, uh, to, to this uh, cult around the NHS. It's just that there's an enormous amount of group pressure. So I have, um, around the time the book came out, I, I gave an, a series of talks uh, about this in, in a number of places. I've often had the experience that afterwards um, that somebody would approach me and say, uh, I work for the NHS myself, I work at, um, at the local hospital or, or wherever, uh, or some uh, administrative part of the NHS, and would say, between you and me, I agree with you, but I would never say this in front of my colleagues. So there must be a, certainly not a majority, I'm not implying that there's a silent majority that's on my side, there isn't, but it's not that 100% of the medical profession is fully signed up to this. It's just that the ones who are dissenters um, wouldn't feel that they can say this in public. And um, I'm not blaming them. 
I'm in the comfortable position. I can write whatever I like. I can say this. Um, I can't get cancelled. They can. This idea of privatisation of the NHS is kind of portrayed as the corporate monster coming in and scooping up the assets of the common people and profiting from them. But would the pharmaceutical industry want the NHS to be privatised or, or would they benefit just as much from it being run by the government? It's difficult to say who exactly would, um, would benefit, especially in a financial sense, from uh, a different system. So I've always made the case that these other systems um, that, I've, that I'm talking about, the main argument in favour of them is that, that they just have better medical outcomes. And um, but who would financially benefit just isn't clear. That would depend on how exactly you do it. Um, in some ways, uh, there are groups that benefit from the system as it is. If you are part of a, a doctor's union, so the British Medical Association uh, or, or the, uh, the nursing um, equivalent, uh, it can be quite beneficial for you that um, you are representing a, a part of a sacred institution. So if you are in negotiations with the government in public and say you threaten to go on strike, uh, there's no way that the public would side with politicians against the medical professions. So uh, you would be in a stronger position in that you would have uh, public opinion on, on your side. So for some groups it can be quite lucrative. Um, for the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, and and other healthcare groups, it could really go either way. So there was an example in in the Netherlands when they um, when they increased competition um, within the system among health insurers that and gave them greater freedom to negotiate uh, contracts. They started to push more aggressively for price rebates. Right. So there you could say. For the pharmaceutical industry, they probably preferred the situation as it was before, without that competitive pressure where they could just say, well, for this drug, we want a thousand pounds, and the insurers would just accept it. Once they move to a more competitive system, uh, the insurers would then say, well, wait, we want that's, that's too much, we want a rebate, um, or you need to somehow prove a greater clinical benefit to us. So things like that, uh, greater... Um, insurers negotiating more and more aggressively, looking for rebates, price cuts, or, or some or, or some kind of benefit um, over and above what what's currently on offer, or just trying to um, increase the use of generics, where rather than using a, an expensive uh, branded drug, where they would try to make to increase the uptake of cheaper generics, so. Um, in, in their case, you could say, well, it's, it's not been great for the pharmaceutical industry. They probably would have preferred uh, the less competitive system, um, but it could really go either way. It's, uh, um, there are also examples um, of, um, and that, those would be the parts of social insurance systems that I wouldn't want to copy. In the German system, it's long been the case that uh, pharmacies have had uh, a privileged position, that it was quite difficult to set up new pharmacies, that they had a a kind of protected cartel, they benefited quite handsomely. That, that's something that you could have in the NHS as well. It would really, uh, that's something that doesn't depend so much on what type of healthcare system you have, but rather how open and competitive you make it. It seems generally people have a feeling that something needs to change with the NHS. 
uh, every successive government is kind of like, oh, not on my watch. Mm. And so it gets kind of pushed to the side or glossed over. Do you feel we'll get to a, a crunch point where something does need to happen, or do you think we just keep rolling? It would not come from um, the NHS just being bad. If that alone were enough to push, uh, to lead to a push for reform, then it would have happened already. It's been clear enough for, for quite some time that the system is well behind its uh, many of the alternatives. It can't be that alone. Uh, there would really have to be a rethink. Uh, public opinion would have to change. It would not have to be necessarily a majority that actively demands a, a different system, but at least it would have to be acceptable enough so that, uh, so that politicians might maybe feel that um, we can do something here. Uh, there would be enough people who would be on our side. What happens right now and what's been happening for decades is that it's not that there's, there's never any reform. Uh, you could even say that there is too much uh, of, a, of, um, of a drive to reorganizing the NHS. What new governments often do, or new health secretaries, is they want to show I'm doing something. And they just, they just come up then with some reorganization plan. They, uh, they, they would then dissolve all kinds of organizations within the NHS and create new ones where nobody quite understands what they're actually doing. It's just lots of three-letter acronyms, um, lots of subunits within the NHS. They would say, well, we, we'll merge these, uh, we'll split those, and uh, a lot of reshuffling going on. And um, that quite often is fairly pointless, uh, doesn't really improve anything. It's more because you want to, as a politician, you want to signal to the public, I'm doing something, but you don't want to do anything that's controversial. You don't want to go anywhere near privatization or marketization. So that's what we get instead. And we have the worst of all worlds, therefore. Uh, we don't get meaningful reform, but we get constant reorganizing. So what kind of thing needs to happen for us to, to break out of that system? Because uh, I think it's a very recognizable system to most people watching, really. Mm. It would really have to be um, well, the, the tendency that I described uh, that started over the last two years, that you have more voices calling for, um, pointing towards better alternatives, uh, saying something about how they work, sh just showing that there's nothing scary about them. That would have to happen on a bigger scale. And the debate culture around it would have to change. Ideally, this uh, what happens right now is that even though you have some voices calling for, uh, fun for system-level reform, um, the defenders are still able to tap into that NHS sentimentalism. Mm. Um, they would, so the argument, if, I've, I've had this uh, dozens of times uh, when during a speaking engagement, I talk about the alternatives I have in mind, and then somebody stands up and says, but the NHS saved my life, uh, or uh, the NHS saved my mother. And uh, I would describe this as a form of emotional blackmail. Um, it, it doesn't really add anything to, uh, to the debate because the alternative that, uh, that I'm describing would, in the same situation, also have saved your life. It would also have saved your mother. And, and probably with a higher survival chance, it would probably be, uh, there would have been more similar cases where, uh, where in my system the person would have survived, where, where in the present system, uh, a lot of people don't. Um, but as long as that is socially acceptable to come up with these cheap, 
uh, knee-jerk, sentimental arguments, then we're not going to get anywhere. We need to move to a, a debate culture where, where that is just frowned upon and where uh, ideally an audience would then say, well, come on, this is a cheap shot. What's your substantial argument? Tell, give me some substance here and not just um, uh, cheap sentimentalism. Christian Lamis, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure. Thank you.